Hello one and all and welcome once again to the Weekend Booktopian. My name is Nicholas Siliev. I am the social media specialist for Booktopia and producer of the show. I'm normally behind the scenes, but here I am as host. And this, for those who do not know, is a podcast about the books that we are reading this weekend. Joining me today is Joel Nayum, our non-fiction category manager. Hi, Joel. Hi, Nick. Scott Whitmont, our business development and relationship manager for Booktopia Publisher Services. Hi, Scott. Hi there, Nick, and everyone. And then last, but certainly not least, our regular host, Mark Harding, our brand and content manager. Hi, Mark. Hi, Nick. It's really, really weird to be on this side of the desk. <laughs> and by desk, I mean I'm like on my bed. I have my laptop on a pillow, so very comfy. I'm ready. Are you comfy? You're all comfy? <laughs> yes. Very well, comfy. Born ready. Um, so what we'll do now is we'll first of all, like, like with previous episodes, we'll discuss a little bit of book news and the latest things that have been happening in the world of books. And then we'll start to delve into the books that everyone is planning on reading or have been reading um, over the weekend. And then be sure to stick around once again till the end of the show where our guests will go head to head for an intense bit battle of book fight, uh, which we've been getting a lot of messages on, which we're looking forward to. So kind of kicking off uh, news, um, the first big news is that there has been an announcement that the likes of James Corden will be adapting the Real Pigeons series. Uh, now, Real Pigeons is the creation of Andrew McDonald, um, and uh, it's a fantastic, fun series of pigeon books uh, with fantastic animations as well. Um, and so I'm going to kind of ask, these guys are massive fans of us. We, we are absolutely delighted with the news of this. Mark, how big a deal is this in terms of kind of expanding the real Pigeon series? Are we going to, are we seeing a new Captain Underpants franchise in the making? Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, so far they've, they've just announced it, um, which is you know, uh, pretty huge, and there's some big names attached to it. They have been working on something for a while. There was um, a story several months ago kind of that quietly dropped about some potential interest in, in Real Pigeons happening in Hollywood. But um, it's interesting because we're also seeing next year um, Aaron Blaby's Bad Guys being um, adapted by Hollywood. So maybe we're in a golden era of um, Australian children's books making the jump uh, across to Hollywood. And, you know, we've also uh, been told that there's going to be a lot more animation coming due to coronavirus. So, uh, yeah, mm. this could be a golden age for, for Australian kids' books. Well, Alice Miranda's also going to Hollywood with an animated TV show, isn't it, by Jacqueline Harvey? So it's three Australian authors with great uh, jump over to film or TV. Yeah, it's it's look, it's fascinating all of the animation that's going on. And it's it, it really goes to show how many fantastic uh, children's writers and also illustrators that are uh, there are here in Australia and that the, the recognition they're, they're receiving is now starting to be translated into other forms of media. Of, uh, of media. So big, big congratulations to Andrew McDonald. And also I forgot to mention to the illustrator, of course, uh, Ben Wood uh, for Real Pigeons receiving that news, um, which is a big one. For them. Uh, the next big news, um, and I'm going to ask to have a chat to you about this, Scott, is the announcement that from Hatchet Australia that the Ritual Prize, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Ritual. in kind of Ritual, thank you, in light of kind of all of the hardships around COVID and everything like that, uh, the Hatchet and the Emerging Writers Festival have agreed to extend the Ritual, Pro the Ritual Prize deadline 
to Friday, July 17th um, at 11.59 closing time. So, Scott, we have had seen a lot of people, like a lot of things within books and outside of books have either been, you know, postponed or cancelled. Extending prize deadlines is, is a bit of an interesting move. Is this Are they making the right move when it comes to pushing back deadlines for prizes? Yeah, look, uh, I think there's no harm in it. Perhaps they haven't had the number of entries that they normally have because people are a bit discombobulated with lockdown and working from home and not with their usual routine. So I don't think there's any harm in it because they want to make sure that they have a, a good selection of, you know, long list and eventually short list books to choose from. Matt Ritchell was an amazing uh, force of nature, really, in the publishing industry. He was the managing director of Hachette, um, the publisher, uh, in his 30s, late 30s, a young fellow, very dynamic very big on publishing Australian authors and championing them. And he very sadly, um, I think it's, oh, I've lost track about six years ago now, uh, was killed in a surfing accident when he was caught in a rip when he just went to have a quick surf before work one day, leaving his wife, Hannah Ritchell, who herself is a, novel, a successful novelist, and two small kids. So it was very tragic, the industry. And Hachette decided thereafter to start this prize in his memory where any unpublished manuscript um, by, I think it's, it was a deadline age, I think, um, I'm not sure about that, um, to uh, uh, can apply. And uh, the prize is you, you get published, well, you get, you get some money, I think, but you also get published by Hachette. So it's, a, it's great to have these prizes that encourage Australian authors, just as Matt like to do, um, people who might normally get a foot in the door of being published. So any aspiring writers out there should take advantage of such extended deadline because it's just giving you another chance if you hadn't got yourself organised around getting a manuscript into them to participate in the competition. Go for it. I think it's great for Australian publishing and Australian readers. It is great. I think it's, a, I think it's an interesting um, phenomenon that's happening at the moment with more and more Australian publishers are doing... Uh, awards of various kinds um, that are competing in a space that used to not be very competitive. So I would say the unpublished manuscript type award would have mostly just been the Vogel several years ago. And um, the Vogel has struggled to find people to actually to, to win the prize. And I think it was last year that they didn't award it. Uh, so my sense is that the fact that they're extending the deadline means that they don't feel that they've got enough high quality entrants. And that means, and it's because these publishers are, a lot of publishers now are, are trying to compete with, you know, ultimately Australia has a limited number of people in it and there's a limited number of people who can write a whole manuscript and submit it to an award like this. Um, so I do think it's worth, it's definitely, it definitely means that publishers are on the look, look out for this stuff. So um, read read the um, requirements of, of of the prizes and submit and submit and submit to these prizes if you're a writer because um, eventually <laughs> I suspect you're going to get picked if your book is good enough. Well, well, you're right, Matt, and I think it's encouraging for Australian writers because it, it you know as anyone who's tried knows it, it ain't easy to get published or to get an agent or to get a foot in the door. So if this prize allows you another opportunity to get your masterpiece you know, published, then everyone should go for it. Exactly. And it's, I think it is, I think it's a fantastic move uh, by both the Emerging Writers Festival and Hashtag Australia to extend this. Um, so for those, um, so for those who are, uh, are uh, kind of aware, who are looking to potentially think about submitting a manuscript, Friday the 17th of July um, at 11.59pm, 
uh, will be the time to go. And actually, just as an extra point off this, Scott actually uh, showed this to me just before we went live, which is the uh, Australian Booksellers Association Booksellers Choice Awards have been announced um, earlier today, and we're recording this on Thursday. And uh, the big announcement, uh, the, the winning books for, for 2020 were the Adult uh, Book Fiction of the Year, which was There Was Still Love by Favel Parrott and The Yield by Tara June Winch. The bookseller's choice uh, for nonfiction was See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. And the children's book of the year was Young Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Um, Scott, what were you thinking of these uh, of these awards, of these wins? Oh, look, I love this award. It's a bit different from others because this is voted on by booksellers all around Australia who are members of our industry associations. That's almost every bookshop. Uh, of their favourite books that they most enjoyed hand-selling and telling their customers about through the last year. Um, and so it's it's not uh, from the readers, it's from the booksellers who vote. And this is the first, I think this might be the first year, if not the first, it's first in a long time, that two books have shared their prize for the fiction, uh, joint winners. Um, I've, I've read them both and they're great. Fable Parrots is a historical novel that moves between Prague and Melbourne. It's a, based on the story of her grandparents over a few generations. And The Yield by Tara June Winch is a, sort of an indigenous family drama about a young woman who has to reckon with her history after the death of her grandfather. Both beautifully written, both very moving, and I think they're, they're very worthy winners. See What You Made Me Do is um, by investigative journalist Jess Hill, and that's a study of domestic violence. And it, really ask readers to radically rethink how we confront the crisis in Australia and that issue. And Young Dark Emu, of course, Dark Emu has been a bestseller every couple of years now. Wonderful book about uh, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders at the time of colonisation by the British, arguing that, uh, explaining they weren't just hunter-gatherers but also made agricultural use of their land. And now that book's been re reworked with illustrations for a younger audience, for kids to understand uh, the concept and learn from history. And that's been a wonderful contribution too. So I think they're great winners and people should go out and get them. There's a reason why all the booksellers around Australia call them their favourites. And guess what? We've got them available on Booktopia. Um, awesome. Thank you very much for that, Scott. Uh, really fantastic selections and, you know, goes to show, you know, how many fantastic books there are out there at the moment. Um, and the other, uh, we're going to kind of move on to a, a next key piece of news. And I'm, I'm really going to throw to you, Joel, for this one. Um, in the kind of J.K. Rowling, Margaret Atwood uh, and a whole other bunch of writers, over 150 writers and activists put their name recently on an open letter against what they call cancel culture, which was published in Harper's Magazine, where they basically, where the letter mentioned that it is now too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Um, basically a veiled reference to the practice of cancelling, quote unquote, a person via social media. What, Joel, what are our thoughts on this? Like, because this opens up a lot of debate, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting time to have decided to do this. I, I think on some level, they probably have some kind of point that sometimes our culture is a little bit too quick to jump on people and, you know, quote unquote, cancel them. Um, and meaning that there are some people who maybe their transgressions are fairly minor and end up in a situation where they get fired from their job or um, have, have, you know, have very difficult to find work or um, in other ways have, have their livelihoods threatened for, for minor transgressions to, you know, taboo, cultural taboos. But 
I also think it's it's telling that the, the headline names on here outside of a, a couple of uh, there are a couple of non non white uh, non middle class non uh, people on this list, but the, the headlining names on here are, are largely you know white middle class people who are, uh, are making a point of taking a stand against cancel culture at a time when there's a huge global protest movement um, in favour you know of the black the responding to the black lives matter movement and um police brutality it just seems it seems a bit on the nose to me and i think it's been made worse by the fact that jk rowling decided to sign and i feel like probably if she hadn't signed it it wouldn't have been as big news um for the people who aren't aware jk rowling's comments over the past few years about um trans people have been have been considered to be offensive by trans people and trans activists um, for many reasons that we don't have to get into. But um, it's, I think her particular involvement in this is, has sort of made it a little bit more difficult to, to cope with for, for the public. Um, and it, it just feels like the whole exercise is maybe a little bit awkward, even if there might be a point there. It's not, I'm not sure if it's the best way to make that point. What do you yeah. guys think? I, I I I agree. I think there's a few things happening here, and I think there's probably a lot more to unpack than just what's on the surface. But I would even go so far as to say that somebody like J.K. Rowling isn't being cancelled or or being censored. Like nobody's refusing to publish her. She has a huge audience. She has a massive forum available to her. She uses it all the time. What's happening is that she's being criticised for her views on Twitter. And I think maybe there's a little bit of a sense of diminishment there. Uh, you know, ideas, thanks to social media, are no longer treated as sacred just because they come from someone who has had a cultural impact. Instead, they can kind of be ripped apart by the proletariat, so to speak, who, due to the nature of the platform, almost have an equal footing with figures of influence. The social media has like this flattening effect, which manifests in other ways as well where, you know, essentially all information is treated as equal, which is why you see, you know, conspiracy theories promoted on an equal footing with academic articles and, you know, uh, fully researched journalism from the New York Times and things uh, on places like Facebook. Sorry, that's a slight digression. But, you know, I, I don't know that I agree with the, with the necessarily with the spirit of the letter because, you know, what, what, is, the, what is the solution to, to this? Is it to censor the people who they want to claim who they claim want to censor their views like if they I, I think essentially for me social media is kind of at the core of this and it, it's it, it's it's about you know the behavior on the platform but you can't kind of govern that you know I, I think the pushback on it is that you know they're talking about free speech well people are using their freedom of speech on these platforms to push back and to say that you know they they don't want to listen to somebody like a jk rowling or you know uh anybody else with those kind of controversial viewpoints although controversial is probably a bit of a soft word there but that that's kind of my the my messy take on it <laughs> yeah I, I think that's partially, partially where it's been misrepresented i think what, why this particular form of the message is so it's been so poorly received because these these this group of people as you say that they, they all have platforms and that's the point that's why they that's why it's notable that they signed a letter and their platforms actually haven't been all that diminished just I'll, I'll give you a slightly different take of opinion uh i understand why they're protesting uh this sort of 
censorship of, of their opinions. Uh, the example I'll give is, I read this week, David Starkey, the English historian who's written many books about English history, apparently has made some remarks in an interview that were considered racist. And of course, I don't endorse his remarks at all. And uh, I'm, you know, of course, against uh, racist comments. However, what's happened as a result is a few of his publishers have, well, one publisher that was going to do his next book have now cancelled his next book. Uh, and uh, another publisher that uh, publishes some of his backlist has said they're looking into whether they want to continue to publish, uh, reprint his backlist and sell it. Now, I might add that I don't endorse, as I said, any racist comments, but none of his books uh, in question are about the subject, about racism, they're about other aspects of, of history. So I can't help but think that when I owned my own bookshop, which I did for 20 years before I joined Booktopia, an independent bookshop, if I had denuded my shelves of authors' books whose opinions I disagreed with or had made comments that I considered inappropriate, then I would have had a much smaller range of books. I don't really believe in censorship. It's one thing if it's if the book itself is objectionable or saying anything defamatory or offensive or Ill, even illegal. But if a book's got nothing to do with the opinion they've expressed elsewhere, um, to start not publishing them or not selling them, I think is quite destructive to our culture and sets a dangerous precedent of censorship. So I I'm just saying I understand why they're protesting what's going on. That's that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, I think that's where, where these two issues become complicated because the people who have been actually censored aren't necessarily the people who are signing this letter. Yes, so but they're how, worried how that they might so be how it comes, So how it comes across in the end is that these people are complaining about being criticised, which is which is essentially you're complaining about other people's free speech rights rather than um, yeah. your, your own. So it is, I think it's a difficult line to walk. And um, unfortunately, you know, at the moment, I think there's also, there's this, I think there is a separate conversation to be had about sort of financial um, protesting against um, particular cultural creations by people who are offensive. Um, but there are group protests that decide where, where group groups of people decide together not to buy things, um, and that is enough in a lot of cases to stop the, the you know the publishers and producers of that content from backing it. Which, given how slim the margins are on, on profit for these types of projects, in a lot of cases, it's you can understand where they're coming from that they just go, well, it's not going to make money, um, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, and I'm not sure if, and again, that would be to, to say that that's not fair is also, it's essentially saying that the people who who've made it clear that they're not going to buy something, that they don't have any right to make that clear. That boycotting not a, things not is, a simple is wrong. issue for sure. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's quite, it's quite, it's quite complicated. Yeah, it is. And it's going to be a very interesting uh, topic of discussion to, to observe over the next couple of weeks as, as we see people respond to it. Um, we will need to move on in a second, but I'm going to make a quick last uh, news point, and I'll, I'll throw it to you for this one, Mark. Um, we had two um, book announcements um, over the week as well. Uh, first of all, Philip Pullman with his new Dark Materials novella, um, which is dropping very soon, but also which was announced this morning, um, Thursday morning when we're recording this, Ernest Klein has announced a new book, Ready Player Two. Uh, I, I we we had a, a discussion about this this, this morning over chat, and Mark's literal response was, oh my God. "How, okay. 
How big just, a deal? <laughs> let's just let's just uh, let, let's just do this very quickly because because I'm aware we're we're rapidly um, eating eating up our time here. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the Philip Pullman thing, that's, that's big news. Um, the novella was actually written a while ago uh, for um, a, a charity um, campaign, and it's just going to be um, released uh, in November, I think. So that's exciting for, for fans of, of that. It's uh, an adult Lyra story, I believe. But then, um, yeah, Ready Player Two. Um, this has been in the works for a while. Uh, Ready Player One is um, a wonderful book that I am an unapologetic fan of, even though there has been um, a little bit of Ready Player One backlash uh, over, over the years, <laughs> noticed it's was because kind of the movie the movie was yeah, bad i think that the movie didn't do it didn't do it justice but it's a it's a wonderful fun book and i'm really excited to see where uh where ernest klein takes it i also quite enjoyed his um other novel amada i thought that was a, a fun little book that you can kind of plow through in a weekend uh but yeah I'm, I'm really excited to see where he takes it the kind of concept of you know uh charlie and the chocolate factory and kind of a computer game digital environment with 80s nostalgia just works so well uh, and yeah, I'm super excited to see what his concept is for Ready Player Two. Yeah, speaks to speaks to many of us on many levels that series, and I think uh, it'll be wonderful to see what he comes up with with that new book. Um, so yes, we are we are kind of a we'll need we'll need to move on because we are uh, running a bit on time. Um, and we'll now talk about the books that you guys have been reading, and I'm going to throw to you first, Joel. Um, what are the book? What is uh, what have you been getting into over the last uh, couple of weeks or so? So I've got a couple of books, but I'm not sure which one to talk about first, because they get, they range from from very different areas. But I'll, I'll start with the with the um, the boring one, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> and then we can work up to the to the one that I do. <laughs> it's not boring to me. Choice, Joel. Uh, it's it's not boring to me at all. But I I, I really enjoy I really enjoy reading about this kind of thing. But um, I can see why some people might not read. So it's not for everyone. But no book is for everyone but anyway this book is um has been selling quite well in the past little while and it's it's i think in some ways it's an important book the book is called the deficit myth by stephanie Kelty. um she is a, an economist and an academic and works as a consultant on bernie sanders election campaign in the u.s so and most of what she's writing about is very u.s focused and it's um it's about economics um but basically but i i heard her on the radio talking about this book uh, and or on a podcast rather I should say and then started reading the book it's absolutely it's genuinely fascinating I've never heard anything like this before and it has it, it's been a bit mind-changing about the way that I think about the world and that's why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast because I thought it would be an interesting idea for people to chew on and if they wanted to explore it whether they could read the book or start reading the book um, but basically she's a proponent of this um, theory called modern monetary theory um, and it's proposing a different way to think about the economy. So the way our economy currently works is that um, the idea is that money is created with debt. And if the government needs to spend money, they need to issue bonds. So in order to create, they create debt in order to spend the money. And then that debt needs to be repaid at some point. Uh, the idea being that they then are in massive amounts of debt in some cases, like Australia is in $550 billion of debt, and the US is in $24 trillion of debt. And a lot of, and what that ends up doing, it has this effect on the way that we think about the government as being sort of like a household where we have to balance the budget and make sure we're repaying our debt and not handing debt over to future generations. In practice, what that ends up being in a lot of cases is like, particularly conservative governments are quite happy to hand out tax cuts. Um, but um, 
you know, more liberal governments are get raked over the coals for spending money on social programs. And it's, it ends up being, and, and you only hear about the debt oftentimes when, when it isn't a tax cut, when it's a, when it's some kind of um, social program. And the only way to justify it is with tax hikes, which can then be criticized on their own for, for you know, making it more expensive for people to live. Um, so the basic idea behind mon modern monetary policy is that money isn't created by issuing debt. It's created when the government decides to spend it, which is, which I just found it really hard to wrap my mind around this, to be honest, <laughs> but it, it took a couple of goes around. But the basic idea is if the government chooses to spend the money, the money is just created. They can issue money whenever they like. They can print money, essentially. The important thing to watch out for is inflation, which is the job of the Federal Reserve in the US and the Reserve Bank here in Australia is to try and control inflation with the interest rate, um, which is a mechanism that is more complicated than I fully understand myself, but I understand that it happens. <laughs> um, but her idea is that that's a very blunt instrument. And actually there are lots of other ways to control inflation. Uh, and you can, and you essentially think about tax instead of tax being um, something that the government uses to raise money to, in order to spend it, like a house, a household would need to do is to either incur debt or collect money by working in order to spend it. But that's not the way that a government works. They can create money. And so long as the money is, is essentially making the country more productive, then you can continue to spend that money so long as, so long as the money remains valuable, essentially. Um, and I, I just think it's such a fascinating idea. It's really changed the way I think about the way the government should be talking about this, these kinds of things and how, um, and especially when it comes to social programs. Like if you're talking about education, um, healthcare, uh, and those types of things that are clearly going to make the society more productive in the long run and make people healthier and happier and, you know, better citizens and ultimately will make them mean they, they make more money. That kind of stuff is going to be worth spending money on, even if, um, even if you have to incur huge amounts of debt, it's not, you don't really have to incur that debt in order for it to be valuable. So I just thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about the world. Um, highly recommend reading it because it's, um, it's, it's very fascinating. Um, I don't know, you know what, everyone's gone silent. So I fear, no, I fear. no, no, <laughs> no, I, to, to be honest, I've actually been, I've been similarly interested in a lot of topics on this and a particular book that I've been wanting to get my hands on going off. This was uh, Neil Ferguson's uh, The Ascent of Money. Uh, and he talks about uh, the financial history of the world, which actually proves to be incredibly, there's also a BBC version of it, but he proves mm. that, for example, talking about all of these, all of these systems that we have existing in the world today, and he brings up specifically the entire nature of debt itself. He goes, I think that, you know, you need, people need to know about this knowledge. And for me personally, I think these things really only make sense once you know where they came from. Mm. Um, and he offers a fantastic perspective on it. So, no, I think if people need to know about this sort of stuff. Often, you know, we people look at this money thing and think, oh, it's all wishy-washy. I'm not going to bother trying to learn about this. But it actually is very beneficial to know about. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just a different way of thinking about the world, so I, I highly recommend it. It's called the, so the Deficit Myth by uh, Stephanie Kelton. And Joel, I assume you don't need to be an economist, you know, or an expert in the subject. It's written in Latin. No, she's very she's very good at explaining things. In so far, if any fault of explanation is mine, um, and, yeah. and anything good I've just said in the way I've explained it has come directly from her. 
she's That's she's great. a great explainer of of complicated ideas. So yeah, look if Joel if if Joel could um, summarize it uh, like that, then it must be a pretty simple read and have lots <laughs> <laughs> of pictures. <laughs> Sorry, Joel. <laughs> Which leads neatly to my second recommendation. <laughs> should I should I go or should I give something? Else? No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so my second recommendation, speaking of pretty pictures, is um a graphic novel series. I've been reading this series for years now. It's been going since I think 2013, or maybe even earlier. Um, the series is called Saga, um, which you know it, this may not be the, the the most the best recommendation for people. For people who are into reading graphic novels, I think most of them will have already heard or read this, heard of or read this. It's written by um, Brian K. Vaughan, who's a very very highly respected um, graphic novel writer and television writer. He's written on all of the big, uh, many of the really, really big um, uh, Marvel and DC comic series like Batman and X-Men and stuff like that. But he's also written a number of like very, very good indie graphic novel series over the many, many years, including um, uh, there's been a Why the Last Man, Paper Girls, and he wrote um, for the TV show Lost and Under the Dome and stuff as well. Lost and Under the Dome, I wasn't a huge fan of, but he, he writes, he writes uh, this particular series is so damn good. And I, it, I've just recently finished the, the last issue in the current, uh, and then they've now gone on hiatus for an unspecified period of time. So the reason I wanted to recommend it is that now is a great time to read, to read it because you can catch up with it and not be worried about missing out on the latest issue and not feeling like you're behind. And then when the, when the next issues start coming out in who knows when, <laughs> uh, another year maybe, um, you'll be in a position to feel like you weren't like a really late adopter. But the, ba <laughs> the basic premise of the books, um, I've heard it described essentially as Star Wars for perverts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, the, the, it's a sort of Romeo and Juliet story. It's a, it's a glo global war between um, aliens with wings and aliens with horns, the wings and the horns. And the people with uh, wings are sort of highly militaristic and the people with horns are like druidish sort of magically type people. So it's very fantasy-ish as well as being sci-fi. There's spaceships, but there's also magic. Um, but it's really not for kids. <laughs> it's adult themes, adult ideas, but the premise is very, and the and the, the impetus of reading is this very simple uh, love story at the centre between one of the wings and one of the uh, horns, who um, they fall in love and they have a baby together, which isn't supposed to be possible, and and so both sides of this intergalactic war that has lasted for centuries um, want to get their hands on the baby and them, and stop the information from getting out, and they're being hunted across across the galaxy basically. And it's just, it intertwines so many different things from popular culture, from sci-fi and fantasy that you would have read elsewhere. And it's highly sophisticated. It, it brings in tropes from, um, you know, romance fiction. There's a, there's a romance story at, at the core of the book, like a, a, a novel, a romance novel at the core of the book that has all this significance to it. And it, it sort of elevates romance as it should be. Uh, and it's got, it's just a, it's just a joyful, gripping read and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And you can buy the whole compendium now of all of the issues that are available. So 
Um, yeah, I, I just want to second what Joel's saying. Um, I absolutely adore Saga. It's so, so good. And um, and now is a great time to read it, as Joel says, and it leaves on such a cliffhanger. It's like, yeah. oh, my God. Why is it going to be, like, another two years before I can find out what happens? But it's, it's so thrilling and exciting, and it's got, like, robots and ghosts and bounty hunters and like a spaceship that's also a tree and like monsters and like it's incredible yeah and it it, sh it shut down the app store when it was censored because um yeah. so one, of, one of the characters who's there there's a race of aliens called the robots who are robots <laughs> they all have screens for faces and various like the old-timey robots have like old-timey screens and the young ones have like mobile phone screens <laughs> uh, and the, the, the prince robot one of the characters has this um like repressed homosexual urge that <laughs> it comes out on his screen face like while he's uh, and it's it's very explicit <laughs> and, <laughs> in, and it's one frame in one issue once and yeah they had to they had to pull the whole app that hosted the, the comics off the app store that i might remember it was years I think, ago though i think you're describing the most mark book ever to exist yeah it's, i mean it is very mark i think i recommended yeah. it to him though you did you did you you um when years we first worked yeah, when we first worked together, you recommended Why the Last Man and then Saga, and I read them both and loved them both. So yeah, nice they're, they're wonderful. Yeah. I think they're making Why the Last Man into a TV show. Actually, he's he Brian K. Vaughan is is wonderful. He's like a, a sort of spiritual successor to Joss Whedon, I would say. Yeah, um, sounds yeah. like a good example, though, as a warning to uh, those those people who think that all graphic novels are, are for kids. That that's not the case. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. not the case, and it's it's just there's just so much joy to it. And I just I I think that if you started reading this, even if you've never read a graphic novel before in your life, but you like sci-fi fantasy, um, you would a hundred percent. There's no chance that you wouldn't enjoy reading. Yeah, exactly. And fantastic recommendation. Love it. Um, and we'll move on to Scott now uh, in terms of books. Because I know, Scott, you have an encyclopedia of fantastic books that you recommend. Um, what uh, what have you been reading over the last few weeks? Well, I think as a segue from Joel, I'll talk about um, I Will Judge You by Your Bookshelf next because it's, well, it's not a graphic novel, but it's actually a series of, <laughs> of cartoons which are highly entertaining and not for kids, for adults also, not because of the same reason as, uh, as, as Joel's. They're not censored. But uh, it's about the love of books and reading, and it's by uh, a cartoonist named Grant Snyder. And it's all about how we collect books, how we store them, how they inspire us, how we might treat them as sacred objects, and basically about bookishness in all its forms and the love of writing and reading. And every page, it's a, it, it's a large format like a, like a children's picture book size. Uh, every page has a different um, comic about an aspect of books and what we do with books and what we read and write. And had me laughing out loud. And he's obviously a great entrepreneur too, Grant Snyder, because you can go to his website and you can order poster size, colour, prints of any of these that are your favourites to be sent to you, which is kind of nice to know because God knows we don't want to tear apart our books to find pages from a book. You can't do that to a book. No, not, not if you're a biblioholic like me or the people that this book appeals to. But it's a really great gift for bookworms. I've been chortling away as it trying to decide which, which ones I want poster size to put on my wall. Um, there's so many of them. Lots of fun. It only came out about a month ago. I will judge you by your bookshelf. It's so, I had no idea this book existed, Scott. Thank oh, you for recommending it. I've been reading his comics 
for years online. I had no idea the book existed. Oh, this well, is so exciting. I, I've Thank never, you. <laughs> I've never heard of it. And uh, I got the recommendation from uh, one of our bookshop customers in Darwin who, who were pushing it. And I said, oh, this looks like my sort of book. And I ordered one and just love it. And if we're ever working in the office on the same day, I can show you my copy. and You'll want one yourself. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> It's great fun. All book lovers would absolutely love a great present when you want a present for someone who you know. A Change of Pace, uh, a psychological thriller. One of my favourite Australian authors, Michael Robotham. Huge following, not just in Australia, but all around the world. And his new book comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Um, it's called When She Was Good. I got an advanced copy to read, which is part of the privilege of being in this, this industry, I guess. Um, this is the second uh, in a new series he's he's writing now about a forensic psychologist named Cyrus Haven. And the first one uh, was called When She Was Good. The clever thing about Michael Robotham is they all stand alone, totally, um, you know, um, standalone stories. You don't have to have read the earlier ones to appreciate, you know, the follow-up ones like you often do in a series. Uh, that having been said, even though he refers to anything from the first book so that you know what's going on, I think it would be, if you haven't read When She Was Good, which is, I'm sorry, um, the first one, Good Girl, Bad Girl, it was called. If you haven't read that, it would be good to start with that just so you get the backstory. I think it might add to your enjoyment of the second one. But as I said, you don't have to have read that first. Um, Cyrus Haven takes under his wing in the first book and, and following up in this one, uh, a young girl named Evie Cormack who'd had a very troubled past. She'd been kidnapped and don't know quite what had happened to her. She was mute for a long time, wouldn't talk to people, clearly traumatised. And she's now um, grown up, she's a young woman, and she's in a sort of a witness protection program because uh, they know that whoever she was hiding from uh, after she'd been kidnapped when she escaped would still be after her and her life would be threatened. And in this book, you find out who might be after her and why. And it's very gripping psychological thriller. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I really, you know, people, it's the sort of book you read in one or two sittings because you just don't want to stop reading it. And very well written. My, all of Michael Robotham's books are. Uh, you can pre-order it from us. It's, as I said, out in a few weeks. If you pre-order it, it'll be sent to you on the day it comes out, which is um, towards the end of July. And I couldn't recommend it enough, When She Was Good by Michael Robotham. Uh, guys, have you read Michael Robotham? I'm sure you have. I, I personally haven't, actually. Yeah. I haven't either. Oh, surprises uh, me. Well, I, yeah. I, I recommend it. Um, yeah, if you'd like a, a good psychological thriller, they're, they're, they're really great fun and very well crafted. He, he has great subplots going on and, and connections between characters, very cleverly plotted. Uh, all would make great movies or TV series. And, um, in fact, uh, one of his books was in a TV series recently, a few weeks ago, um, uh, can't remember what it was called now. Anyway, doesn't matter. We're not here to talk about TV series. But Michael Robotham's <laughs> great. And uh, very quickly, I'll slip in a third. I know we're short of time. Uh, it's just come out another Australian, um, I suppose, also psychological thriller by a first-time author named Anna Downs, and it's called Safe Place. And this is the story of Emily Proudman, who is a failed London actress who gets a job as a receptionist. She's not very good at that either, really. But surprisingly, she's offered by her boss in this big company where she's trying to be receptionist, uh, a job to be a companion to his wife, the, the boss's wife and daughter who live on this fancy uh, estate on the coast in France. And uh, they're kind of isolated there and they, his wife needs an assistant and a companion for the daughter who's got some unspecified 
medical problem and that she, she doesn't socialize really. So would she go to France and help them out and help the family? Well, this seemed like a great opportunity to Emily, who's um, not been very successful with anything she's touched up to then. And she goes off to France, and the book is the story of the mystery of uh, what happens there. Nina, the wife, uh, is very high strung and obviously has a secret. Aurelia, the daughter, doesn't speak. It's the second book talking about a mute child. <laughs> um, she's clearly got psychological as well as medical problems. What is the secret and how might it threaten Emily's life and what she does about it is the story. Again, not not great literature, but really unputdownable, uh, exciting story. If you just want a bit of escapism while you're in lockdown, uh, it's it's really a good read. Safe Place by Anna Downs. So th there's the three from me. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a wonderful book. We had the pleasure of meeting Anna. She came into uh, the uh, our, the office to sign some copies and we had a lovely chat to her. We also did a podcast with her, Ben, um, as well, with Ben, and it, she was it was wonderful to have a chat to her, just hearing about how this book came together and the actual nature of just she, using it as an actual method of escape for herself um, when she was writing the book, um, so fascinating. And I've only heard good things about it, which I heard it's a fantastic debut. Fantastic selection, Scott. Absolutely love it. Um, I'm aware of the time, so we'll move on to Mark. And uh, Mark, what have you been reading? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be really quick because I'm aware that we have to move on to book fight and I have to lose a book fight. So um, I, I don't <laughs> want to delay that very much. But um, I just wanted to um, uh, mention next week, um, David Mitchell's new book, Utopia Avenue, is coming out. Um, and I just want to really, really strongly recommend that uh, people read that and other David Mitchell books as well. Um, but this book is... Um, is just this beautiful novel that is set in the 1960s and it's about a band that um, comes out of like London's psychedelic folk scene. Um, and it's it follows uh, the four members of the band um, as they kind of live their lives in the 60s and encounter uh, not just the, the places and, and the times and the events, but also the people um, of the 1960s. So all kinds of amazing uh characters who uh, really kind of existed in that time pop up, uh, you know, people like David Bowie um, and um, Sandy Denny and all these other kinds of people who were around at the time kind of bump into these people. Um, and David Mitchell does a wonderful job of describing the music as well, which is always a tough gig when you're writing writing about music is always really, really hard. But I think he does such a good job of steeping the band in um, kind of the sound that he's looking for, that that kind of comes through quite quite naturally. Um, and the, the last thing that I'll say about it just really quickly is that um, for people who are longtime readers of David Mitchell, you'll know that there are kind of recurring themes and ideas that uh, come through in his books. And this book is kind of grounded in reality a lot more than most of his more recent works. So his his most recent two books, The Bone Clocks and Slade House, were very much kind of fantastical novels. Uh, and this one is much more real 
but there is kind of a little bit of an element there where you can see how it links to his other novels. And we actually had a chat with David Mitchell uh, on the podcast, uh, which will be out next week, that episode, which we're very excited about. And he mentioned uh, the way he described what he does is that he's writing kind of a meta novel where every every book he writes is kind of a piece in this in this broad kind of story that he's that that he's writing where you can take it as a whole or you can just read the individual parts of it and both ways work uh but this is just a wonderful book for anybody who loves books about music loves music loves that era because david mitchell is a master at bringing a time to life and he does it so well here so it's great for for people who love that and it's also great for people who are just fans of his work and want to see uh you know kind of how how this fits in with everything else that he does so the um not the bone clocks <laughs> utopia avenue booktopia avenue by david mitchell it's out on tuesday of next week i believe um and you can pre-order it right now uh on booktopia.com.au and you know if you haven't read any of his other books just like grab some because they're all fantastic and he's just great um and then the second thing that i wanted to uh talk about is um at the end of the year, Denny Villeneuve, the filmmaker, has a big budget adaptation of Dune coming out, uh, starring oh, Dean yes. Chalamet. It's, <laughs> it's this huge, big thing. Maybe it won't be out until, you know, December of 2021 now, due to everything being delayed and cancelled because of coronavirus. But something that I am toying with the idea of doing, and I may jump into um, over the next few months, is a Dune reread. I have not read Dune in a long, long time, and I really want to uh, kind of get get it back into that world but it's been i haven't read it um in about 10 15 years it's been a long time and in that time so much dune has been published so there's frank herbert's original series of six novels and then that's been followed up by his son and um, science fiction writer kevin j anderson who have gotten together and written prequels galore and sequels and kind of fill-in novels and sequels to prequels and, and all kinds of stuff. And I'm I'm toying with the idea of just jumping headfirst into the Dune universe and, and getting back into it. Um, because I I I really, really loved the first book. And then I I kind of dropped off reading them after Dune Messiah. Uh, but I, I so it's kind of like a reread and a read at the same time. But I do want to try and get that get that done by December if I can. It's ambitious. I'm probably not going to do it. But Dune, everybody should read Dune. It's great. Nice. I'm totally on board for that. The, late, the later books get super weird, but, you know. They do. <laughs> I had no idea that Kevin Anderson was his son. You've taught me something here. Oh, no, uh, Brian Herbert is his son, and um, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert write together. Oh, I see. Right, I, I misheard you. Right. Well, I, yep. didn't, I didn't know that Brian Herbert was his son reviving the follow-up ones. That's great. Yep. Yep. Excellent selections. Absolutely love them. And on top of it, going back to your point on on, uh, on Utopia Avenue, we'll, um, when it comes out next Tuesday, we'll also be doing a podcast which will be dropped just beforehand, that podcast that we, we talked about. So uh, look out for that. Fantastic selection, guys. Absolutely love it. And now it is time for us to absolutely tear each other apart and see who is the best, has the best book knowledge going around at Booktopia. It is time for Book Fight. So, for all of us here, we are now, uh, before we begin, it's, for those who are unfamiliar, it's essentially a quiz show where I ask the questions, we have a whole bunch of fun, nothing really matters, and before we begin, I need everyone to select a buzzer that they're going to use as they word, that uses their, as their buzzer if they want to kind of jump in and answer a question. So we usually pick a single word for that, and I'll throw it to you first, Mark, what shall your word be? Uh, my word is going to be Dune. Oh, I love it. June, yeah. fantastic. 
Um, for Joel, what's your word going to be? Uh, in honour of Hamilton, my word is going to be brak. Brak. <laughs> I love it. And then lastly, Scott, what shall your buzzer word be? Well, I was going to say the generic book, but I'm wondering that's, if that sounds too much like brak. <laughs> it's a sound effect rather than a word. Oh, okay. I think okay. you're going to well, be confused. We'll, we'll be I'll, I'll stick to book. Book. We'll keep it as book. Fantastic. All right. So let's go in terms of a fun, awesome selection of quizzes. And the questions start right now. Question one How many James Bond novels did Ian Fleming write? Book. Book. We have a book. Um, I'm guessing 16. Oh, you're so close, but unfortunately you're just short. Uh, I'll open it up to everyone else. Who, anyone else have a potential, can have a guess? <laughs> yep. I'm going to guess 21. Oh, no, no, way too high, way too high, too high. De low. June, June, June. June, what have we got? 17. 17? Yeah. No, too high again, too high. <laughs> Oh, come on, man. Hang on, but you said I was too low no at points. 16, so how can you okay. be high at 17? <laughs> no, unfortunately, the answer is 14. How oh. many books is it? 14. So, all good. Question two. Anna, in Anna Downs' new book, The Safe Place, struggling actress, actress Emily Proudman was offered a life, a living job working for a wealthy family on their luxurious coastal property. Make sure you've been paying attention. In which country is that property located? Look. Book. Oh, wow. I think I heard book first. And yes, it is France. First point to Scott. Fantastic, guys. All right, question three. For two points, name two of the nominees of the 2020 Arthur C. Clarke Award that is being presented next week. June. June. We have a June. Okay. Um, I, I, I can't remember the titles of the books, but Charlie Jane Anders and Adrian Tchaikovsky. Yes, we can. I'll give you that. Adrian Tchaikovsky's Cage of Souls. We have one yep. point there. And what was the other? Charlie Jane Anders is The City in the Middle of the Night is that book there. Yep. And yes, and Adrian Tchaikovsky's Cage of Souls. Um, good selections. Love that. Question four. Name the novel that contains this opening line. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. <sighs> Very famous book. Very famous book. You'll be kicking yourself if you don't get it. Do you get a half point for the author? <laughs> yeah, uh, potentially. What is the, well, Who's the author? Who are, you throw, who are you suggesting? Jane Austen. Uh, unfortunately. I've got, I've got a guess. Okay, uh, bu first buzz first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Of an author. I can't remember the book. Is it F. Scott Fitzgerald? Yes, it is. Uh. I'll give you I'll give you both a point for it because you're both because <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Very Sorry, good. I feel like I got really competitive there for a second. <laughs> That's what I've got. This does not represent I should, me. I should probably have just guessed Great Gatsby. <laughs> yes, you should have guessed me. <laughs> That's what this show does to you. It does, unfortunately. Okay, question five. We're about to hit the halfway point. In Candace Fox's latest book, The Gathering Dark, what is the nickname of convicted murderer Blair Harbour? Oh, wow. <laughs> Too hard for me. 
I haven't read I, the book. I haven't read the book either. I'm sorry. Oh no! <laughs> I haven't read it either yet. Oh no! <laughs> oh dear! Failure on my part. The answer to that one in question was the neighbor killer. Ben and Liv and Olivia will be furious at you for that. <laughs> All good. So we're at the halfway point that, now. That the neighbor killer, does he kill Harold or, or Bouncer? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my dear. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't make that. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Um, so at the halfway point, we have a score check, and it's very, very close. Mark, you're currently on three points, and Joel and Scott, you are both on one each. So we have a lot of questions coming up right now. Um, so num question six. Name as many books as you can that begin with the letter C. One point for each one. What? Do we just shout them out? How yeah, are you going to do this? <laughs> you can buzz in. Basically buzz in and name as many as you can. Begin with the letter C. Yes. <laughs> book. Yep, book. We have book. Yes, Scott. Crucible Arthur Miller. Crucible. Yep, we've got one. Doesn't that start with the... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Shut up, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned one earlier in the podcast. Uh, oh, God. The crane wife. wife. <laughs> crane wife. Yes, yes, we have crane wife. I'll give you that. Anyone else? Dune, Chamber of Secrets. Oh. <laughs> Is Point. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? No, that's, that's at the back of the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give it. I'll give you a point. A point for each of you on that one. Well done. Question, <laughs> question seven: What is the name of Homer's famous poem that tells the story of the siege of Troy? Brah. Brah. Yes. The Odyssey. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Book. The Iliad. The Iliad oh, is the correct damn. answer. Very oh, always gets them mixed up. Okay. <laughs> question eight, our second last question. The famous Sherlock Holmes line, Elementary, my dear Watson, was written by Arthur Conan Doyle. True or false? Uh, oh, I heard it was close. I'll go with I'll go with uh, false. That is correct. Indeed, <laughs> it is. So uh, the line was never written by Conan Doyle in any of the novels. Uh, it was it was made famous by Clive Brook in the 1929 movie Return of Sherlock Holmes. And currently we have points. Mark is on four points. Joel is on three. Scott is on three. This last question, if Mark gets it, you win. If any, if Joel or Scott get it, you tie. And the, the last question is, what is the name of the final novel that features Agatha Christie's famous detective Hercule Poirot? Book. Book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Poirot's Last Stand. No, well, it's like that's kind of part of it, but I won't give it to you. It's not the exact name. Give me the exact name. No idea. I'll give you a clue. It begins with C. Uh, Poirot's Last Case. Quote. No, Poirot's Last Curtain. Curtain? <laughs> what you said? Is that, was that Curtain? Curtain, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Oh, God, third time lucky. Thank you. <laughs> No, yes, that's a, it is a tough one, that one, but uh, a personal favourite of mine. Love that book. Got um, got one of the best twists ever in it. No spoilers here. So that brings us to the end of the, uh, of the of book fight. And look at the scores and, oh, my goodness gracious me, 
Joel is uh, finished up with, on three points, but Mark and Scott drew on four points each. So it's tradition here as a, as a, if the victors, whenever they return back to the office, they office, return back to the office, they have to arm wrestle for who's going to be the winner. So uh, <laughs> I just thought it meant that Joel buys both of us a drink. <laughs> Actually, that's very civilized. I like that. <laughs> yeah, this really disadvantages it when you get a, a joint winners. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> this the staff get together, Joel. You can just give us a Mexican drink. So. <laughs> that's good. It's, it's funny. It's, Congratulations, Scott, and uh, in your face, Joel. <laughs> I expected nothing less. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, Joel, we've, we've, we've had three episodes of this, and two of them have had joint winners now. So it says a lot about the quality of the book knowledge here. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Weekend Booktopian. So I'd like to thank all of you guys, Scott, Mark, and Joel, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It's Thanks, been Nick. Great fun. Thanks, Nick. So The Weekend Booktopian is produced by myself, Nick Wasiliev, and you can find links to all of the books that we have discussed today in the episode description, or you can find them at booktopia.com.au. And you can listen to all of our new shows for free on SoundCloud and iTunes, including our most recent podcast, Booktopia on Crime Books, which is a brand new podcast that we've released around Crime Month, which, we're, which is currently happening at Booktopia gives you all you need to know about all fantastic recommendations for crime books. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Weekend Booktopian. Until then, thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.